You ever meet someone and just have this urge to keep talking to them? Like, you find everything that they have to say utterly fascinating and enthralling. And no, I'm not talking about that feeling when you have a crush, though if there were a climate scientist to crush on, it would definitely be this one. This was my experience when I first met Dr. Mika Tosca, a climate scientist and activist who works at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago as an associate professor. She's also an affiliate climate researcher at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. She has an incredibly unique look into the world of climate science. For her, climate science is another medium from which to create art. She works to bring artists, designers, scientists, and musicians together. She recognizes the role that the arts play in our fight for climate justice, and she brings her queerness into the work too. She sees this fight as a revolution, as liberation. I really wish more people could have this lens. If you love sci-fi author Octavia Butler as much as we do, you're going to love this episode. This is the Architectures of Planetary Wellbeing podcast. I'm your host, Yesenia Funes. Hello, everyone. We're here today with Dr. Mika Tosca who is a climate scientist, a humanist, and an activist. She is an associate professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and an affiliate climate researcher at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Southern California. Her current research in public outreach explores the synthesis of art and climate science and posits that engaging with artists, designers, and makers is instrumental to solving the climate crisis. Hey, Mika. Hey, how's it going? How are you? You know, it's going all right. It is a Monday. <laughs> it is definitely a Monday. Mika, I wanted to just open up the space for you to introduce yourself and maybe fill in any gaps that I might have missed when introducing you. Oh, sure. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you you kind of covered all the, the, uh, the big ticket items, but um, I, I guess I'll just describe a little bit about what a climate scientist is doing at an art school. So mm. I am a climate scientist. I have a PhD uh, from UC Irvine in Earth System Science, which I got in 2012. Um, and for a while, yeah, I was working full-time at uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab as a researcher, and I really got uh, kind of uh, jaded and cynical by just the way that, um, you know, scientific, uh, you know, genesis of scientific knowledge was, was happening there. And so I, I started applying and looking around for jobs where I could, where I could teach. Um, and I, and I stumbled on this really great opportunity at the school of the art Institute of Chicago, which is an art school. We teach, uh, you know, <clears throat> mainly students, undergraduate students, uh, how to be fine artists. They all get a BFA, um, or a BA in art education. And so as a climate scientist, uh, my job is to teach science to art students. And so they have to take 25% of their courses um, in uh, sort of academics and the liberal arts. And so science counts as one of those. Um, and so I'm, you know, one of the required classes. But uh, since coming to SAIC and, and, and working with art students, uh, I really expanded my own scientific research and my own scientific practice uh, to think about ways that art and science can sort of collaborate and synthesize um, as we try to sort of solve the climate crisis. So that's what a climate scientist is doing at the Art Institute. Um, yeah. So cool. I feel like you have one of those jobs that I imagine is a dream job for many folks in this space. 
Oh, it's definitely, I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. <laughs> you know, it feels really um, fitting that this is a podcast on architecture. And I think, you know, for myself as someone who's still very new to the world of architecture, I think of architecture as a form of art, as a sort of art medium. Um, I'm curious mm -hmm. to hear your thoughts, Mika, on the role that art and architecture together play in solving the climate crisis. Yeah, uh, well, art definitely, architecture, sorry, is definitely um, considered an art. You know, we have a department at, at the school that's, you know, architecture and uh, designed objects and, um, I forget what the other letters stand for, but it's a big, long acronym. So architecture is definitely considered an art, um, and we have a lot of architects who are training at the school. Um, so you're right with that, for sure. Um, more broadly, the role that art and architecture can play, I mean, there are many roles, right? So I think there are some really didactic uh, roles that art and architecture can play. For example, how do we communicate uh, you know, very complicated concepts, uh, related to climate change and, you know, uh, you know, scientific components of the Anthropocene, that sort of thing. Um, uh, we can use art as a, as a way of sort of, uh, you know, simplifying or better, just better communicating these really complicated concepts. But I also think there's a role for art that kind of goes beyond that, that that's a little bit more abstracted, you know, ways that art can inspire us or sort of pique our imaginations um, to think about uh, ways that we can solve the climate crisis that are that are maybe a bit more out of the box. I know that's a bit cliche to say out of the box, but you know, just like sort of sort of out of the box thinking, like what, how can we be inspired in different ways by the the things that we're seeing that and the and the, and the art, artistic mediums that we're experiencing? You know, um, Octavia Butler, who is a is a really well known um, speculative fiction Afrofuturist uh, writer. She writes a lot about sort of post environmental crisis worlds and how we build, you know, societies. And she often says that um, science fiction, which I guess could be kind of more broadly applied to the world of art and architecture, uh, science fiction isn't just about sort of talking about the problems of the world, but also about solving the problems of the world. And so that, you know, really guides um, the way I think about these things. So thinking about the role that architecture specifically can play um, when we think about solutions to the climate crisis, you know, I think architecture can be really integral as we think about solutions, mm -hmm. uh, specifically, you know, green architecture, sustainable architecture, um, architecture that is socially sort of responsible um, and 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 assumes the responsibility that I think it it plays in our society because architecture is more than just like you know what the building looks like or what the inside of the building looks like but it's also how you interact with the space how the space interacts with its own environment and all of these types of things so you know I'm I'm moving into uh, some, some new work that kind of centers this idea of solar punk and solar punk, uh, is, is really important when we think about architecture specifically, because it's like, how can we combine, you know, human technological ingenuity with the natural world in a way that, you know, ensures that we have a really positive future. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, you're getting at so many different topics here and ones that I all want to explore with. I, I guess just to, <laughs> just to backtrack a bit, some of the points you made about art and inspiration really resonated with me. It's a big part of the work that we do at Atmos, mm -hmm. the magazine um, where I work. Mm -hmm. And because 
there's something about art, whether it's photography, illustration, that can really move people, right? And, and I think that there's like, there's no overstating the the importance of that and mm-hmm. how much we need that right now, that inspirational element um, mm-hmm. to move people and to like get out of this paralysis, I think that we're all collectively feeling given the gravity of the climate crisis. And so I just want to say like, I really, really appreciated you saying that because I think that that feels kind of like the... I don't know. I think to people who are like interested in art, it feels kind of obvious, but it's mm-hmm. something that I think we need to keep reminding folks of that inherent value, especially as we see like, you know, efforts from certain politicians to keep certain pieces of art, you know, out of schools. And um, yeah, just mm-hmm. this, I think, lack of appreciation for that inherent um, value that art brings. Yeah. You know, it's like, I often say, you know, like if we want to build the future that we need and deserve, we have to imagine it first. And what better to help us imagine that future than art? I mean, art really, uh, you know, reaches us as humans in ways that other mediums, other disciplines, um, even science itself doesn't reach us. Right. So art can really reach us in really important and, and interesting and unique uh, ways and like you said, we're sort of surrounded by this apocalypse narrative uh, in the media. It's framed as this sort of like end of the world, right? There's just so much despair and and everything is horrible. And while that might be true, you know, while 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 things are not looking great necessarily in terms of climate change, um, there's always hope. There has to be hope, right? We're 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 still here. We're still living. We're building worlds. We're you know existing within those worlds, and so we are going to get to the next world. And so let's make sure that that next world is a good one. That we address this crisis in the right way. And I think sometimes the framing of it as an apocalypse is almost intentional, and it sort of intentionally closes those doors. Um, and it closes us off to thinking about, you know, ways that we can actually approach this problem. So Mika, you touched on a lot of interesting elements here around the world we need to build. And you talked about solar punk as well a little earlier. And, you know, for those who aren't familiar, I mean, can you just describe and define what solar punk is? I mean, it's something that I'm actually quite interested in. Um, and we've been talking about writing about it a bit here at Amos, but curious how, how you would sort of define and describe um, the solar punk. Uh, sure. Yeah. So solar punk is, you know, the, the sort of punk genre, it's, it's not totally sort of dissimilar or divorced from other punks like steampunk or cyberpunk, but the difference between those and solar punk is that solar punk is really, um, deliberately leaves behind this, this apocalyptic or dystopian framing and replaces it with what I call like a post nihilist paradigm for mm-hmm. imagining positive futures. So it's it's this emerging movement in, I guess, speculative fiction, art, fashion, activism, etc., that sort of uh, encourages us to imagine and embody what a sustainable civilization will look like and how we build one. And so it argues that, you know, as climate change and global warming and all these various um, environmental disasters get worse, society needs more than just warnings. We need solutions, right? And so 
the punk in the name uh, sort of comes from this idea that we should be centering the voices and the contributions of those who are typically and have largely been excluded from uh, the status quo, like artists, for example, mm. also queer people. I'm a queer person. And so it's like artists, queer people, black and indigenous thinkers, etc. cetera. Um, right. And so it has to exist sort of outside the mainstream, just like other punk genres like steampunk and cyberpunk. But like I said, it, it doesn't really sort of resign itself to this dystopian future. Um, <clears throat> though I will note that it, it doesn't necessarily um, replace that dystopian future with a utopian one. Um, it just um, sort of asks of us to demand sort of a radical imagining, bold commitment to change, sort of keeping hope alive, even when it feels like the darkness is sort of closing in on us. Um, it's that kind of that kind of energy, that kind of vibe. Yeah, and that solar, the solar in the beginning of the word is also about like the renewable energy, the clean energy future, right? That is so necessary right. to actually have this positive future. I'm, I'd love right. to hear a little bit about your own project because I know you have a project, Solar Punk Futures, mm -hmm. imagining positive eco futures with art. Talk to mm -hmm. us about about this project and how you see your own work um, in this realm redesign this response to climate change and the sort of narrative around climate change. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is a really exciting project and actually it's perfect timing because, um, so a little bit of background, but I've been working with a young uh, undergraduate artist uh, on this project and uh, he approached me at the end of uh, the spring semester and was just like, I want to, I want to do something about this. I'm, I'm 22 years old. I feel really like I feel a lot of anxiety and despair about climate change. Like I, I'm a painter. I want to explore this uh, idea of solar punk, but you know, he specifically said that he, he wants to make the idea of solar punk, not cringe, which I just love <laughs> gen, gen, gen Z kids like that. Everything is cringe, you know? Um, so I don't know what makes solar punk cringe to a gen Z, but his, I don't think it's cringe. I think it's amazing, but he's, he was really into this like idea of like, Hey Mika, I want to work with you. And I want to like, think about solar punk, but I want to think about it in this like really abstracted sort of like kind of radical imagination way. And so we've been meeting all semester and we've honestly just been, we've been chatting, we've been chatting about the science, we've been chatting about climate change in general, like how we build futures, like what we need to do that. And all the while he's been uh, creating a very abstract painting, which I haven't been able to see until literally uh, today. So um, I was like, you have to show me this, this painting before I, before I, um, you know, do this podcast. So <laughs> he, uh, he showed it to me and it's, it's honestly really beautiful, but what it's, what's especially really cool about it is that there's no, uh, you know, right, right answer, or there's no right way to read it. There's no right way to see this painting. And that's sort of, I think what we're kind of going for with this idea of solar punk, we're just, we're thinking about how we can build, you know, worlds that aren't necessarily right or wrong or this or that, but actually just are sustainable and work for everybody. Right. So like, how can we get people thinking about hope amidst darkness, right? About the earth and all of the sort of bounties that nature and our natural world uh, give to us that we sort of, you know, discard or throw away or abuse or over extract or whatever it is we do, you know, it's like, how can we 
I mean, it sounds really corny. I'm a millennial, so I guess I'm allowed to be corny and, <laughs> and cringe. But, um, you know, how can we do this together? How can we actually, you know, build a better future in this period of like, you know, metaphorical darkness? And so mm-hmm. um, the painting itself is really beautiful, but it's actually the project is more than just the painting. It's developing this language in art that allows us to sort of sort of branch out into maybe other mediums or um you know more paintings or or um you know other ways of 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 sort of approaching this problem so Mm -hmm. the painting is aptly titled beginning um which javi my my collaborator my artist who uh has been working with me his his name is javi miller um and so he titled it beginning yeah, yes, sorry. and um, I'm, I actually am looking at this because you must have uploaded this onto your website quite <laughs> I <did>. rapidly. <laughs> I so did, I, I did. I, could you describe it a bit for, for our readers? I mean, I have sort of my own reaction to this, but would love to hear yours. Oh my gosh, I don't even know how I would describe it. It's um, <laughs> So it's, it's really abstracted. I guess if I had to sort of be a bit reductive, um, it's giving kind of... Uh, uh, impressionism vibes like it's 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 a lot of brush strokes and it's uh a lot of different um vibrant colors so there's like a sort of greenish um you know <laughs> it's greenish at the bottom there's some reddish and orange kind of interspersed without and then mm-hmm. and then some bluish in the upper right corner it's actually really difficult to describe which i think is like yeah. somewhat the point um i I've, I've been asking different scientists actually who see this painting uh to 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 give me some of their some of their reactions and it's really interesting because some are are really kind of broad like warmth and colorful and hopeful and others are like really specific like it's chicago in the fall or it's (laughs) it's a satellite image of a forest fire or um that you know so just stuff that's just really kind of um it's it's so different it runs the gamut right and i think that's the point it's like what what this painting can do it's just a small small little uh, piece of the puzzle and the, and the way this painting like allows our imaginations to run wild it's like something that we can apply to the broader conversation about solar punk and more broadly sort of how we're gonna do this like what are we gonna do to get to the next to the next world definitely you know when i look at this painting i almost sort of have this like space on earth feeling like that that mm-hmm. little there's this sort of blue galaxial type thing happening in the top right that almost feels very yeah like it feels very celestial to me um Mm -hmm. and yet it also feels very earthly by like the greens and the reds um but then i had another thought about yeah forest fires you could mention that that's the other sort of like reaction i had i'm like is this a forest on fire you know which i think is just the beauty of art is Mm -hmm. as you mentioned like we all have our own interpretations um and reactions to it um yeah. But it doesn't feel scary. It doesn't it doesn't give me like a scared or frightened feeling. It gives me it does make me feel kind of kind of warm. Even even when I imagine this might be like <laughs> a forest fire, it doesn't feel right. warm. Yeah, it's kind of like it's like it's like uh, I, I I asked a friend of mine too who is not a scientist but is is more of an artist and 
I asked him to explain it, and he said, it's water, earth, fire, and air. Long ago, the four nations lived in harmony. <laughs> then everything changed when the fire nation attacked, but the earth nation is the site of resistance. And then he went on to say, like, it's also giving the release of 8 billion souls from their flesh prisons into the inevitable and ethereal plane of eternity. So it's just, wow. it's doing a lot for a lot of different people, um, which was the point. Would love to hear a little bit about how Octavia Butler um, has inspired your work, um, specifically this parable of the Sower series that I know many of us um, in this political era that we're in have been quite attracted to. Um, and you've mentioned her earlier, so just really keen on hearing sort of that connection you have with her work. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. Um, you know, Parable of the Sower, if for those who have not read it, is kind of like creepy in how <laughs> similar it is to our current time. It's of course this speculative fiction about a world, a post uh sort of environmental disaster world where um, you know, we're rebuilding society, the main character, um, there's a lot of uh sort of religious undertones, but the religion is one that's, you know, guided by and sort of in tune with the earth and the natural world, that sort of thing. And this particular quote has always stuck out for me because it's like, you know, the world is full of painful stories, uh, climate change, apocalypse, like social injustices, um, environmental injustices, right? And seems sometimes it seems as though there aren't any other kind. And yet, and I think we all do this, I found myself thinking how beautiful that glint of water was through the trees. Despite all of these sort of horrors, we keep going, right? We keep, mm -hmm. we lead on, we lead our, uh, you know, our tribe, our people, our whatever it is on um, so that we can maybe someday get a glimpse of the glint of water. And so it's that glimpse of the glint of water that I'm really kind of kind of going for. I also really love how, oh, sorry, were you going to say something? No, 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 no. I was just responding oh. to you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so, so I think sometimes, you know, uh, another thing that Octavia uh, Butler does that I just really, really love is um, things are never sort of black and white for her. Um, I guess pun intended, but <laughs> It's very much, it's, yeah, it's very much like a lot of gray areas. So, so another, uh, another book of hers that really inspires me that almost you wouldn't expect when it comes to sort of climate change and, and this, this whole, this whole like sort of line of thinking is Dawn. I don't know if you've ever read Dawn or, I haven't or the read series that one. of Dawn. No, I've only read, uh, Kindred and then, um, the Parable series. Okay. I highly recommend Dawn and the ones that come after it. Um, Adulthood Rights and Imago. That's the, 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 uh the series. And, um, it's a bit different, right? It's like, just to give a, not to ruin the story for anyone, but just to give a brief synopsis, it's basically like, uh, humanity essentially, uh, pushed itself to the brink of extinction through various environmental disasters, nuclear war, climate change, etc. And this sort of alien race came and saved us from ourselves. But in the process of saving us from ourselves, they created a hybrid, uh, sort of species that was both human and this 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 alien species and there's just there's so much gray area like is that helping us or is it controlling us um mm -hmm. there's the, the 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 alien species has like sort of three genders it has like the traditional male and female and then also a third gender that's sort of I guess we would call it non-binary or something. Obviously, Octavia Butler didn't call it non-binary in the book, but um, it's this kind of gray area that I love what she does because it, it really does, she's not telling us what the future can be. She's guiding us 
to what the future can be. And I think that's really what we need. And that's what I'm trying to do with my artists, with the work that we're pursuing. It's like guiding us to the future, but not telling people what that future can be, but let's build it together. Like let's imagine it and let's figure this out, right? Let's, let's get there somehow. Yeah. And also just like bringing together different perspectives and um, viewpoints, right? Like the sort of like blending of this and that to sort of create that nuance, to create that gray area as you worded it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know that that's something that you do a lot of in your own work is sort of like these blending of seemingly, you know, uh, separate, um, separate works, right? Like you've been interested in intersections of queer techno, club culture, climate Mm -hmm. activism, Mm -hmm. which, you know, Mm -hmm. to the average person might feel so disconnected from one another. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd love to just hear you talk about the importance of, you know, focusing on these queer spaces, focusing on music in your research practice, and also mm-hmm. just like, what have you found throughout uh, your research on this topic? Yeah, thanks for that question. I, you know, bringing the queer uh, angle into this is, um, it's it's relatively, it's a relatively new direction that I'm going, but it's so important to me. I, I as a queer person, right, as a trans woman, um, who has, you know, existed in queer spaces for most of my adult and just honestly my whole life um it's it's so important that i incorporate the perspective of of queer people you know i like to say that as queer folks and especially as like a trans person um my my sort of proximity to revolution if you want to call it that um Mm -hmm. is is pretty like you know i'm pretty proximal to to this idea of revolution and sort of radical liberation if you want to call it that and so i often think of uh, solutions to the climate crisis, to various environmental disasters as a sort of liberation of the environment, right? Like it's a liberation of the natural world. Um, and, and, and can we draw on, um, experiences from queer liberation and queer resistance movements as we set out to think about how we respond to climate change, you know, like, are there perspectives and, and angles, that come from queer existence and queer being and belonging, you know, that we can, we can bring to, to the conversation about climate change. And so to that end, um, there was a really cool opportunity this summer, um, where a friend of mine was organizing a speaker series for that, that was, that was happening at this, like, four-day rave in the forest that I go to every year, this queer rave in the forest where there's techno music, there's house music, there's yoga, there's, you know, um, and then there's these, these talks. And so I gave a talk on, uh, on this and I engaged with a lot of the folks there. We went on some nature hikes and we talked about all these different problems. And it was just really important for me to bring this work and my own experience as a climate scientist into this sort of unconventional space to see what type of ideas it could generate. And it really was a site of, um, of a lot of Genesis. I've got a lot of DJs and, um, you know, techno aficionados and others who are, you know, now we're chatting and we're talking and we're hoping to put together some kind of, you know, let's call it a musical experience. Let's not call it necessarily a rave, although the idea would be sort of um, this, you know, sonic experience where we're thinking about climate change with our music. Uh, During the pandemic, we're hoping to kind of start this in, during the pandemic, but then of course, you know, the pandemic kind of closed down a lot of, um, 
you know, in-person things. And so we ended up doing a really cool um, panel that um, we brought in some DJs who created these mixes for us that were inspired by climate change. They have lots of sort of sounds that come or are, are drawn from nature, natural sounding things, or just music, you know, that, 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 um, for whatever reason is inspired by, or has some link to climate change and the climate crisis. So this is definitely something we're still pursuing. I would really love to put together this, um, you know, this like sonic experience. And, um, I'm hoping more DJs and other folks who are interested in this get in touch with me so that we can figure out, you know, what the next steps with this are, because so far what I've done, um, has gotten a lot of really positive reactions. And so I want to keep that going. It seems like the, the, especially the queer techno club house scene is really interested in being a part of this conversation. Yeah, and there's so many sounds to capture, right? And so many sounds that you can bring into this mm-hmm. music. I mean, I think about like the melting of glaciers and how that has a sound that scientists have recently discovered, or like yeah. the sound of, you know, a forest burning, that crackling sound of flames. And I don't know, I just think it's just so interesting and sounds so creative, um, bringing together yeah. these different sounds and and immersing them in music. I know that this is also something you've been working on with your students, right? Exploring the ways mm-hmm. that sound, sonification, techno music can all communicate and address the climate crisis. Can you share mm-hmm. a little bit about the projects that you've been doing with your students? Yeah. I mean, there's a really cool project, which you can um, access on my my webpage, which um, is called Plastic City. Uh, a student yes. of mine, Eli, Eli is um, this really talented, um, you know, electronic music producer. Um, and they made a really cool sort of multimedia thing. There's a zine, there's a website, and then there's a whole album and there's several sort of music videos that you can watch on YouTube, um, as part of this album and the whole album, I think it's called in water. Um, and it's, it's, it's about this idea that in the future, maybe because of all the plastic in the oceans, (laughs) we make our cities out of plastic and they're floating, uh, in the ocean. And so, you know, Obviously, that's is that going to happen? I mean, I don't know. Maybe, probably not. But uh, it's just this idea of imagining this radically different uh, world that allows us to, you know, think about things in new different ways. And so, the honestly, the album itself is like really uh, beautiful to listen to. I put it on the background all the time when I'm working. Um, it's hard to explain it. It's it's kind of like. Uh, it's, it's soothing almost. Uh, it has a lot of sort of interesting sounds that aren't exactly natural and aren't exactly not natural. They're just, Mm. they, 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 I mean, I think in my opinion, they really embody solar punk, this, this synthesizing of, you know, human technology with the natural worlds. Um, and so that project is, is super cool. There's also another project that I, um, worked on with a student of mine where he took, uh, Jimi Hendrix's version of the Star Spangled Banner from 1969 Woodstock and superimposed onto it a sinusoidal curve uh, in the in the sound uh, that is 
derived from, <laughs> let me see if I can get this right. It's derived from a Fourier transform of the carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere. So as the song goes along, it becomes louder and more dysphonic, right? As the carbon emissions increase. Um, but there's a, there's a pattern to it. There's a sinusoidal pattern because, you know, carbon dioxide goes up and down over the annual cycle. And so there's a really interesting, uh, you know, take on that, which is, that, you know, we've got the Star Spangled Banner, America, United States is is typically kind of sort of one of the, the worst offenders of climate change, right? We have very large per capita emissions. Um, we've notoriously withdrawn ourselves from two climate treaties, the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement. Um, and then, you know, there's something about, you know, Jimi Hendrix, uh, a black man playing this 50 years ago, Um you know, at this countercultural type event. And there's just a lot of symbolism, which, you know, I love symbolism. Um, yeah. and, and, and just, and then the, the math and the science put on top of it, it's just a really beautiful uh, project. Definitely. And symbolism, I, I feel is just such, um, a powerful tool within art, um, mm -hmm. that again, sort of elicits some of that inspiration and curiosity and empathy and emotion at large that, that, um, yeah, we just need, we just, we need people to feel right this moment and to feel compelled to react to this moment and music as an avenue to do that. Um, this feels right. And we actually have a little bit of that audio to share with you all today. Um, let's check it out. I think that throughout your work, Mika, it seems that collaboration is a major theme, whether that's with students, whether that's with musicians and these, you know, DJs and these techno artists. Why is it important for us to work with one another, especially within the climate movement, um, especially given the urgency of the climate crisis? Yeah, this is such a great question, actually. And it kind of brings us back to um, more of the design side of the art and design and 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 uh, conversation. And and it uh, just to be really brief about it, I, I, I did this really cool project with um, a designer where we redesigned this, um, you know, scientific database uh, with some data that I had worked on when I was still full time at JPL. And w during that redesign process, I, I learned a lot about not only the design process and the methodology that that people use to, to to create designed objects, but also just the idea of collaboration. So I think I'm in an inter interdisciplinary field as a climate scientist, right? Earth science, um, sort of. We need we need atmospheric physicists, we need oceanographers, we need ecologists, we need uh, people who look at rocks, geologists, sorry. <laughs> um, and, and we need you know we need all these things, and we need to sort of know how to talk to each other. But I do think sometimes the amount of collaboration that um, scientists think we do is a bit overstated. And, and mm. I say this because when I actually started working with designers and artists and others, I learned that <clears throat> what I was doing before wasn't real collaboration. It was a uh, sort of collaboration, but it wasn't this sort of radically interdisciplinary approach, right? And something I learned above all else is that designers at least, um, and artists especially, unlike scientists necessarily, designers are really interested in what people think about their work. Obviously, I mean, you're usually designing something for a stakeholder, right? And I think of science in, in much of the same way, like, except that scientists don't 
often spend much time understanding, empathizing, listening, learning from people, from actual people, from stakeholders, from even each other. There's oftentimes, you know, this genesis of a hypothesis, some scientific, uh, you know, uh, project that we want to pursue, but there's very little like actual collaboration in how that's going to work. What, whether it's even, uh, you know, I hate to use this word, but a, sort of a worthwhile project, whether it's a project that, um, we really should pursue, whether it's a question that, that anyone even cares about the answer to, you know, in this sort of post enlightenment scientific project that we're all engaged in, right? Um, it almost seems sometimes like scientists are just creating scientific knowledge for other scientists. And I like to think that we should be creating scientific knowledge for each other, for the world, right? To, to, to make things better. And obviously as a climate scientist, the problem of climate change is very sort of urgent and pressing. And so perhaps this is more important for that, you know, field or that, that, um, discipline, but I do think it can be expanded to sort of include all science. I think if we, if we actually talk to each other, if we collaborate, we can generate ideas and ways of knowing, um, and even knowledge itself that we might not have sort of generated if we hadn't done that collaboration. Yeah. That, you know, hearing you talk about that makes me think a lot about the role that traditional ecological knowledge plays in climate science, the role that indigenous knowledge plays in climate science. You know, finally, there's a space now for, you know, there's a space being made within climate science where they're welcoming um, some of this ancestral knowledge that many indigenous peoples hold um, and sort of the collaborative um changes that are happening within the field and the collaborative transformations that are happening um, to make space for that knowledge as well. Like that, that's what came to mind for me hearing you talk about um, the need for more collaborative science because, yeah, it does seem like science has a specific way of functioning that has sort of, um, you know, upheld systems of oppression mm-hmm. and systems of white supremacy and, you know, it's based off of these colonial systems and... Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. science, science, TM, as like what I, how I like to call it, <laughs> capital S, science, TM. It's very colonial. It's a colonial project, honestly. Um, and I, I don't, you know, I don't think that means it's beyond saving or, 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 or making better. But Definitely. I think it, like you said, we need to acknowledge that. And like, especially sort of indigenous um, activists, thinkers, et cetera, have been really the vanguard of environmental justice movements. Um, and I think that, you know, centering that knowledge that those voices is critical, right? Like, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but the 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 film Don't Look Up, I really don't like it. I, I know it's supposed to be this allegory for climate change, but I feel like it really centers this, like, white environmentalism that I don't know that it's really, you know, done that much... Ha- you know, had that much hell. I don't know what the right words are. I don't know that it's helped that much, um, in, in getting to the next, to the next step here. Right. Like it's, it's the, the, the point of the movie is like, Oh, if we just listen to the scientists, we could solve this, but it's like, I'm not actually sure that that's the case. Like, I, I think a lot of people are listening to the scientists, but the problem is that science as it's currently sort of constructed, isn't enough. Actually, it's not enough to get us to what we need to get to. And the only way we can get to that is if we collaborate and listen to each other and actually like draw on the knowledge and experiences of people that are outside of that mainstream sort of discipline, right? That's hence the solar punk idea. 
Yeah. That's actually a take that I like. I mean, as someone who enjoyed that movie, Don't Look Up, I really like that angle that you have, Ron. I mean, don't get me wrong. I really like the film. I think the film is funny and I'm probably going to get in trouble here, but I just don't think it's, it operates as a, a, a huge sort of vehicle for, you know, enlightenment on the climate crisis as it thinks it does. A hundred percent. I mean, again, it sort of has that sort of doomist narrative. That's, that's the narrative that it's perpetuating, right? Like we're we're all screwed anyway. Um, yeah, here comes the exactly. Kill us all. I totally feel you. I mean, I just felt very seen watching that movie. Like no one else cares. And I'm just like screaming into the void. <laughs> yeah. But the the right. ending was, uh, yeah, was quite something. Um, hopefully it was quite something has watched the film and we're not just spoiling it for the listeners. Um, on that note, Mika, I, I think that it would be quite beautiful for us to end on an inspirational note. Um, was hoping that you might have a quote you can share with us today that helps you envision the world you want to see, the world you're hoping to create. I'm hoping this wasn't your, your quote wasn't the one that I, I shared earlier from you. <laughs> well, I was going to say that that is usually the, the quote that I use uh, as sort of my inspiration quote, but I've got lots of different, you know, uh, quotes that can inspire us. And I also just, um, you know, have, have things I can say about this. So I'll start with the quote. It's actually, um, an Ursula K. Le Guin quote from the dispossessed. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll just read it. You cannot buy the revolution. You cannot make the revolution. You can only be the revolution. It is in your spirit or it is nowhere. And so I just want to remind people that this isn't the end of the world. It could be the end of this world, though, which might be okay, right? Because we have this radical and I think revolutionary opportunity to make the next world better, brighter, more equitable. But if we don't first imagine the future that we want, then we will never have the future that we deserve. And in order to get us to that next world, to that future, we must incorporate diverse voices. Beautifully said, Mika. Thank you so much for being with us today and for for sharing um, that really powerful quote. I definitely felt that one. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. This was honestly such a joy, such an honor. I love talking to you. This was great. I love talking to you too. (laughs) I hope we talk again soon. Me too. We're going to save the world. We're going to do it. Architectures of Planetary Wellbeing is a podcast of Revisions, a media initiative supported by REARC Institute, a philanthropic organization committed to supporting architectures of planetary well-being. For more information on REARC, please visit www.rearc.institute. This season is hosted by Yesenia Funes. For more information on her work, you can follow her online at YesFun, Y-E-S-S-F-U-N, and her work, The Front Lines, at Atmos Magazine. This podcast is produced by Mina Kwan and Andy Christians. Music by In Atlas.